Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pretty soon after I got off the squash tour, I want to say this is the end of 2015, I was staying with my buddy Crosby on his couch, or technically his buddy Charlie's couch, who was his roommate. And I started talking to companies about trying to find a job. And one of the first companies I wanted to talk to was Airbnb. I don't know if I wanted to work there so much as I wanted to hear their story. These were founders who had no experience in the industry that they completely disrupted in a matter of years, doing something that seems kind of crazy on the outside, renting your home to total strangers. And yet, having been someone who had stayed in the homes of strangers for two years, I needed to learn more. Turns out 25%, or around one in every four hosts on Airbnb, use the rental marketplace and the income that they make from hosting their spare room or their garage, whatever it may be, to quit their job and jump. And I thought that was fascinating. We ended up collaborating later uh, that year, actually, for their global member conference called Airbnb Open. So that kicked off a partnership that has uh, spanned in the next couple of years in a bunch of different neat ways. But the company's incredible. The story is just even more wonderful because this is a story not around how you have an idea and it works. This is a story, as you'll hear from co-founder Joe Gebbia on the podcast today, around what happens when you try and you fail, and you try and you fail, and you try and you fail about five more times, and then something that you think was crazy ultimately becomes a business that will change the world and the way we sleep and the way we travel. Joe, Thank you so much for joining me live here on the When to Jump podcast. Mike, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's start way back. What did you want to be when you grew up? When I was a little kid? Yep. Oh, man. Well, I grew up uh, studying art and design. Um, I had a knack for drawing when I was a, a, a little little boy. And all throughout school, every art teacher that I ever had through elementary school, middle school, and high school encouraged me to take more and more art classes. And so I ended up... Um, taking everything from whether it was a pottery class to a drawing class to painting. I took a, a jewelry making class at one point. I ended up studying art at a summer program in Georgia called the Governor's Honors Program, where they took the top, top students around the state for each discipline in math or science or art, and you literally did college-level work for a summer. And that, that's where I really fell in love with art. And one of the professors there pulled me aside one day and she said, she said Joey, I really think you need to, to go to art school and pursue this talent that you have. And she recommended this one place called the Rhode Island School of Design. I go, the Rhode Island what? (laughs) What is that? Where's this? And she tipped me off to this place called RISD. Um, I spent the next summer there in high school where I got a chance to be on campus and do more college-level work in a drawing and painting course and absolutely just fell in love with, um, with art, with bringing ideas to life. And I really think my childhood was just about having ideas and bringing them to life in, in so many different ways through art, through small little businesses that I would start, whether it was a lawnmower business, um, whether it was selling T-shirts in high school. Um, I was always finding ways to put ideas out into the world. 
Do you have any memories that would stand out as kind of uh, instrumental or or points that kind of pushed you towards it even more or reinforced your passion for that? I remember one time um, my sister was a swimmer and she had these swim meets. And so my parents would drag me along to the pool to be there for the swim meets. And during one of these meets, I noticed that there was um, a design problem, that the spectators were on one end of the pool and on the other side of this Olympic-sized pool was a concession stand. And so basically anybody that wanted to get up and go get a a snack had to walk in front of all the other parents, basically broadcasting like, you know, a snack is more important to me than watching your child swim. And I had an idea. I thought, well, what if I found a box, uh, I strapped it around my neck, and was able to strike a deal with a concession stand and, and actually bring snacks to the parents? And so I did exactly that. I took my belt off and actually like <laughs> wrapped it around my neck and then found this like box somewhere in like the garbage and made a deal with the concession stand. And before I knew it, I was, you know, hawking Snickers bars and Coke cans to thirsty parents. And I ended up, you know, paying for my baseball card collection that summer. Oh, wow. Any uh, famous baseball players you collected through that card? Oh, man. If they were hot in the early 90s, I had them. Oh, yeah, probably. I'm thinking Ken Griffey Jr. Definitely Mark McGuire, Barry Bonds, yeah. um, you know, all those guys. Was having a, uh, a family that supported you in those types of kind of crazy ideas and your, your outlet for creativity, was that really, was, how important was that? Where was that? Well, it was kind of easy because they were crazy, too. <laughs> <laughs> you had a crazy family. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, my parents were both entrepreneurial in spirit they they both forged their own paths in life and so I grew up in an environment where they were very much um, in control of of their own destiny in many ways whether that was success or or failure and so witnessing that growing up I think for me gave a lot of um, a lot of inspiration really to one day having this desire to do my own thing now what that was as a young boy I had no idea yeah I thought it would be somewhere in the the realm of art that would be making art and you know selling work in galleries in New York City or maybe having a company of some kind you know um, it was you know in middle school and high school and the internet came out and so I immediately got into web design taught myself HTML and CSS in like the mid 90s I started making my own websites and that was again a really incredible way to create things because you could um, in one evening, create something and then publish it to anybody else that had an internet connection. Yeah. It's pretty pretty radical at the time. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, I mean, it's so interesting the time we live in. It's almost like this renaissance with technology enabling people to be like, all right, I have an idea I'm going to share with the world, right? Uh, did you go to, into RISD thinking you'd go into the technology lens of applying art towards that? Or was it physical design? Was it a, you know an art gallerist in New York City? <laughs> what what did, you, did, did you know? Was it any of those? I, on my application, I put down painting as my, my major. I really thought I was going to be a fine artist. And lo and behold, that first year, I discovered there's 17 other disciplines that you could study at RISD, whether it was architecture or you know, ceramics or furniture design or industrial design. I thought, industrial design, what's that? Wow. And I got to know these, uh, these students who were studying industrial design, which is the creation of products. And... Through that, that process, I came to understand these infamous industrial designers named Charles and Ray Eames. And if anybody listening to this has never heard of Charles and Ray Eames, it's a very good chance that you've sat in one of their chairs before. They made some of the most iconic furniture in the mid-20th century, uh, furniture that's regarded as, as iconic and uh, quintessential design. 
Um, in fact, it's you can find them in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. And as I began to study the lives of Charles, the husband, and Ray, the wife, um, this couple dedicated their lives to creating the best design for the most people for the least price. They really wanted to democratize good design and make it accessible to all. And what really excited me was this idea that their creativity can be imbued into products that can then be replicated to touch hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of people. And it was that singular moment where I said, wait a second, I want to apply my creativity to solve problems in the world, problems at scale, problems that can touch a lot of people. And one thing I didn't realize at the time would be that the internet would be that medium, right? That instead of an industrial manufacturing process where you're, you know, mass producing products, um, the, new, the medium would be the internet where you can reach anybody that has you know, a connection. Before you came to that realization that it would be the internet, did you, did you mess around with making the next chair? <laughs> <laughs> the society's next great table that would be here? For, did you think it would be physical or was it just, was it just the idea that you then applied towards the internet? Um, it's, yeah, I certainly... It, I didn't know it was going to be the internet at that time. Uh, I had no idea I would be starting an internet company. Um, but there was just this deep desire to reach as many people as possible. Right? That if you had an idea, um, like what what was the channel for to get in the hands of the greatest amount of customers uh, or users? And so, you know, I was always dabbling with stuff. I always had something going on in, in, in either high school or in, or in college. Um, and you know, a lot of people you know, think a lot of people hear about their Airbnb story, and they think, "Oh my God!" Like he, he, you know, his first company he struck it big. I think that would be like the biggest misservice to entrepreneurs out there if that's what they thought. Because to understand Airbnb, you have to go all the way back to like high school, even. And what you'll find, what I find when I look back at my life, is this this pattern of having an idea and putting it out in the world as quickly as you can. And not any, not all the ideas obviously were very big. Most of them you've never even heard of. But there were all these attempts and um, these uh, sort of exercises in going through that process. So that any time I spotted an opportunity, I developed, I felt like I developed this muscle of bringing it to life, right? Like you have an idea, okay, what's the next step? How do you actually put that into, into reality? How do you take it from the pages of a sketchbook and put it to the, the shelf of a store. And so there are many years of my life from high school on dabbling in that. And of course, so many things didn't work out, but right. that's the whole point. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. It's funny you say that because that is something I think gets lost almost every day in pop culture and social media is people gravitate towards the story on the ninth attempt when it works, right? And, and they look at the ending of, of the narrative, the, the, the glossed over photo of someone in Bali or the LinkedIn post of when it works. and. I just think, and, and knowing your story from you know kind of a superficial level, it just seems like um, you. It seems like you were able to have a, a sense of courage and bravery, and also maybe indifference of if failure happened, uh, uh, an ability to just push forward. Is failure just part of the design process? Part of being an entrepreneur, for sure. <laughs> I think ask any creative, and you know the the ones who create the things that you see or hear, whether it's music or art or design, you know that process is wrought with, you know, a whole lineage of ideas or sounds that you never heard, that never made it to the final cut. But of course, we're all attempts at trying something new. There's a great quote somewhere over at Pixar where they said, if you, if you, 
if you've never failed at anything, it means you're not trying anything new. And that's a very dangerous place to be, especially from a business standpoint. Um, so, yeah, I think for me, it's like the analogy would be like if you're running a marathon. You want to run a marathon. That's your goal. You don't just wake up one day and run 26.2 miles, right? Like you actually train for it, right? You have to train for it. Your body just physically can't do it. And so I think the same is true with a company or with any idea is that if, if you want to have, you know, a company or put your idea out into the world, it's not, you just wake up one day and it just happens. It's something that you train for. And I, I really think for anybody listening right now, like it's something you can start today, right? With any idea that you have, there's always some small step that you can take to move the idea forward. And um, I, would, uh, I would say that you, you, one of the, the biggest things you can do is like take the pressure off of like this having to be the big thing, this having to be the one. That's not the point. The point is just get into the habit of bringing ideas to life, of asking yourself, what is the next step with this idea? It's very cool that you had this vision very early on, like I want to make an impact in the world, and yet how that is going to manifest itself, and at what point and what swing at the bat will it work? TBD. Right? No idea. I mean, I thought it was going to be the seat cushion project that I had when I graduated from RISD. I designed a portable seat cushion that you could take to a ball game or use in an art studio. And um, certainly the product never really came you know, to anything uh, of, of great success, except that it was a great learning experience for me. I learned so much from bringing that product to market. I really was so committed to demystifying what's that black box between having an idea in your sketchbook and going to the shelf of the store. How does that actually work? Because they didn't teach that at art school. Yep. You didn't learn that. And so the day that I graduated, I started my first company to demystify that process and really teach myself what is involved with bringing a product to market. And so through a lot of ups and downs, um, a lot of rejections, you know, the first four stores I walked into to sell my product to all said no straight to my face. And um, I'd be walking home back to my apartment in, in Providence, Rhode Island, just with, you know, my, the tail between my legs, like thinking, oh man, like how long is this going to go on for before <laughs> somebody says yes and I can actually start um, actually you know, recouping some of my costs for making the seat cushion. And on those long walks home, I remembered an equation that I heard from a professor at Brown University. So one weekend they had this entrepreneurship um, extravaganza kind of weekend and I snuck in as a RISD student and um, I sat in the back row and listened you know, through all the lectures of these entrepreneurs and business leaders and this one guy gets up and he talks about this equation for failure and it was it was any time that you're trying something new in the world and somebody says no here's an equation it was sw squared plus wc equals mo and so what that means is that when you are putting an idea out some will love it times some won't plus who cares equals move on <laughs> And it was this really basic idea that, like, you just have to keep going. <laughs> like, people will say no, and that's, that's okay. And so I'd walk home from these rejections, and I'd say that SW squared equals plus WC equals MO in my mind. And uh, I'd say, all right, well, I just got to keep going. Is the, is, I'm not a math guy, but the square, does that mean it's extra important? People, <laughs> like, the left people love it more well, so than not people? It, it will, it'll be equal. There'll be as many people that don't like it as there are that do. And you, you just, just, you have to ask yourself, like, how much effort are you willing to put in until you find the people that are willing to say yes? When you move out to California and <laughs> uh, you haven't 
made that you know, lasting impact on the world, or at least not yet, it's 2007, right? And you're onto your new business. You failed a few times in these different things you've been trying. How do you, what's going through your mind at that point? Um, you know, there's times where you, you sort of lay in bed at night when you're trying to fall asleep and you're thinking to yourself, like, like, how long is this going to go on for? You know, sort of like, when, when will people see what I see? Like, when will they see the value in what I've created the same way that I do? And there's no clear answer to that. I, I had no clear answer to that. And that's, I think that's, that's like some of the darkest moments where you're, you have more enthusiasm about your product than anybody else or your idea. Um, you want others to share in that enthusiasm. You want them to buy into it. You want them to see what you see. And um, that, doesn't, like, that doesn't come easy. Probably the, one of the, I'll tell you one of the worst movies that ever happened to entrepreneurs was Kevin Costner, Field of Dreams. <laughs> because there's a quote in there that is, I hear far too often, which is that if you build it, they will come. And that couldn't be further from the truth when it comes to entrepreneurship. Like, if you put an idea into the world, people don't just automatically flock to it. If anybody thought that Airbnb, like we flicked a switch and then all of a sudden we were one of the largest provider accommodations on the planet, you would be way off the mark. Like, we built it and they didn't come. <laughs> in fact, we launched again and they didn't come the second time. We launched a third time, they didn't come again. And by the fourth time, some of them started to come. And then it was a long process of the first three to four years of the company were just like pushing a boulder up a hill. It was near impossible to get people to stay in the home of someone that they hadn't met before because of, you know, we've all been taught since we were kids that strangers equal danger. It's this bias that we've all been ingrained since we were, you know, little kids. And so um, I think anyone who's thinking about taking the jump, anyone who's thinking about you know, starting some, putting your idea out to the world, um, if you build it, they won't come. And that's okay. What matters is the level of persistence and resilience that you have with your idea and the level of passion and enthusiasm that you have to get you through um, that kind of early adopter period when you first put your idea into the world. And so I really think that entrepreneurs who persevere and succeed are the ones who have the highest level of passion and um, conviction about, about their idea about putting their idea into the world. Now we could go into all the successes of, of what would become Airbnb, but I'd rather stay on the failure piece sure. for a minute. Uh, when, you, when you're brainstorming for not Airbnb, for a company that was prior to that, and, yes. and you have the idea, um, what was the reaction? You know, it's so easy, again, to just fast forward to the present where it's, it's synonymous. You can use it as a verb, an adjective, a noun. But when Airbnb was literally the output of when an industrial design conference, <laughs> mm -hmm, yeah. when you first hatched that with Brian and you, and you kind of were passing around and you got Nate involved and others, what was it like? What was that response? What was that first kind of reaction? Well, so when Brian and I first hosted people in October 2007, we thought it was just for the weekend, right? This is just a way for us to make rent to save our apartment so we didn't get evicted. And we were shopping for an idea to work on and it wasn't even obvious to us at the time that this was the big idea. So we actually put this on the back burner and started to try to come up with other ideas um, in November, December of 2007. And it wasn't until we went home for Christmas and for New Year's in de uh, December 2007 that people asked, hey, w what are you doing? How are things out on the West Coast? And you know, I didn't really have a lot to share about what was going on because I didn't have a lot going. 
But I did have this story about this one weekend where these three guests stayed on airbeds in the living room. We became friends and saved our apartment. And one of two things happened. The conversation either picked up and got really excited and attracted more people, or it got really quiet <laughs> and people walked away. <laughs> and it was just incredible to see how quickly people said, oh my God, I would love to stay in someone's home when they travel. That would be such a cool way to see a city. Or the other side, which would be like, are you crazy? You went, what? Who stayed in your home? Oh my God. And they'd walk away. And I think there was something about the emotional reaction that it, it got out of people that um, really opened our eyes. So Brian came back from his New Year's experience and we both had the same story. It was like, like it split people down the middle. We said, well, maybe there's something here. Like there's clearly people who like got really excited about this idea. Why don't we pursue this? So we brought on Nate, my other roommate, and the three of us began our adventure to build the company. And wasn't there a story with all the credit cards you guys had? Oh, my God. Through, right? like, a bi- like binders of credit cards, right? So uh, by the third time that we launched the company, because the first two nobody knew about it, so you can always relaunch your company again when nobody cares, <laughs> we thought, hey, this is a good time to go out and raise investments. So we meet with investors, the who's who of Silicon Valley. And, man, we just did not see success anywhere. In fact... The first investor meeting that we had was a guy down in Palo Alto, um, and we meet him at this cafe. He gets a smoothie. He's sipping on the smoothie while I'm doing a site demo, and then before he's done, he goes, um, he goes, thanks, and he gets up and he walks out. I look at Brian, and we're thinking, is he going to pay his parking meter? He didn't finish his smoothie. We're halfway through our pitch. Five minutes passed, 10 minutes, 15 minutes passed, and we kind of realized he left. <laughs> he just walked out of the pitch altogether. And I'm thinking, oh my God, is this how VC meetings go? Holy crap. Um, just about every conversation we had was a variation of that. Not everybody walked out of the room, thankfully. Um, but it was certainly, um, it was demoralizing. It was really, really demoralizing. Because now at this point, we'd spent um, almost a year, maybe a little bit less than a year, working on our concept and to get this reaction from really smart people, right? That these are people who picked PayPal, YouTube, Google, Facebook, who are looking you in the face saying, this idea will never work. <laughs> this will never work at scale because people won't stay in each other's homes. Um, that was, that was a dark period for us. Um, and so without any investment money and without any customers using our service, we were stuck, you know, our bank accounts are running thin. And that's when we got the bright idea to start using credit cards. So we did raise a round of funding. We joke. Uh, we called it the Visa Round. Visa didn't know about it. We did take out $5,000 until that card got maxed out. Then we moved on to the MasterCard Round and then the Amex Round. And we ended up having this uh, baseball, baseball card folder of credit cards, which was how we funded the company early on. I don't recommend that, by the way. Um, for us, it worked. Um, but it's not a comfortable feeling to get you know, tens of thousands of dollars in a credit card bill that you never know how to pay down. Um, but for us, we, we just believed in it. You know, I don't know how else to say it. We had those three guests stay with us. It was our proof point. We said if other people can experience the same thing that we did, we think they'll like it just as much, if not more. But we just have to keep going. That's what I was going to ask is what, what leaving that, you know, <laughs> the smoothie bar, the cafe, and the investors not coming back, what picks you up in the next morning? You know, what gets you out of bed to keep going? Is it just that belief? <laughs> It's, I, it's that belief. <clears throat> I'm also realizing it was, it was Brian and Nate. It was having co-founders who believed as much as you did. 
right? Like in the darkest of, of days, we could lean on each other to support one another when everything else around us was saying no. Like if, if you analyzed our business in the early days via a spreadsheet and you did market analysis and you did every kind of calculation about to the size of how big this could be to the sort of um, challenges we're going to face, like if you put it all into a spreadsheet, I would guarantee you the bottom of that spreadsheet would equate to don't do this business. Go work on something else or get a job because this is not going to work out. Like all signs were telling us this was not the thing. Yet the three of us had this conviction amongst each other that, that it was a thing. And if we could persevere long enough to create, to present it in a way to people where they could understand it, then uh, they, would, they would have this experience the same magic that we did in our apartment that first weekend. Wow. Um, and we'll just have a few more minutes and we'll wrap up. <clears throat> yeah, just a couple. Yeah. So... Let's fast forward through a lot of it, what I call the 10,000 unsexy steps, that probably, maybe a million unsexy steps that, that followed with Airbnb. Now you're at a place where was it a million rentals a month being put on in exchange to the platform? That- on New Year's Eve, we had over, well, close to three, sorry. On New Year's Eve, we had about three million people staying in Airbnbs all over the world, uh, over 160 countries worldwide. And does that, is there like a holy crap feeling when you say that out loud we're way beyond that <laughs> <laughs> that must be i guess maybe a few years ago that mean um and now you're you're working on something specific within airbnb can you tell us a little bit about that yeah it was about three years ago i started an internal design studio called samara to really think about the future of the company and uh you know i'm just gonna pull something up real yeah go for it you can pause. yeah i can ask that question again. yeah sure go for it so a few years ago, you decided to look into something specific within the company. Can you tell us a bit about what you've been working on? Sure. About three years ago, I started a design studio inside Airbnb called Samara with the purpose of exploring new attitudes towards sharing and trust. And you can see that the team builds hardware and software that support this direction. I think if I look back, Airbnb has proven that hospitality and generosity and the, the simple act of trusting strangers can go a long way. And so Samara is a space for these values to continue to evolve beyond travel and beyond hospitality and, and maybe one day into our daily lives. Wow. What is your hope looking forward for Samara as you think of Samara as part of Airbnb and Airbnb as it continues to jump to stay forward in, in what will evolve as a new economy and a new way to live? So without revealing too much, I'd say you know, Samara is looking at what's next for Airbnb. Um, it's, it's balancing the management of the, the day-to-day of, of running the, you know, one of the largest accommodation platforms in the world with being able to imagine what the five to 10 year future looks like and being able to prototype that and bring it to life. Um, and one of the things I, I didn't expect in addition to building products and services from the future was actually spawning out new teams in and of themselves. So there's been initiatives and teams that have spun out of Samara, one including a team that we call Human. And Human has taken the Airbnb platform and looking at how to apply it to some of the world's biggest problems. And the first product, you could say, is called Open Homes. And Open Homes is a way for Airbnb to put a roof over the head of people who need one the most. So anytime there's a natural disaster and we have Airbnb community members in unaffected areas, we can um, alert them about the Open Homes platform and they can volunteer their rooms for free to those who have been displaced. And this is actually all 
inspired by an Airbnb community member in Brooklyn during Hurricane Sandy back in 2012. And based on her idea to volunteer her rooms, we built a platform that has now been deployed in over 90 different disasters from fires in Napa to earthquakes in Mexico City to tsunamis in Japan. Um, it's been incredible to see this natural generosity of people step up from all over the world who see these amazing, like just horrific images on TV of, of these natural disasters. It was, you know, Hurricane Irma, Harvey or Maria. Um, and you see these images and you, you want to hold your hand up and say, hey, what can I do? And now for the first time, anybody that has a spare room down the hall can list it on, on open homes and make it available to those displaced. So for anyone who's interested to learn more, you can go to airbnb.com slash open homes. It's incredible. What a manifestation of, of a kernel of an idea into so many things that have, that have gone well beyond hosting someone for, for a weekend on an air mattress. Uh, Joe, I really appreciate your time. Uh, if there's anything you'd leave the When to Jump community with, what would you tell them? Don't wait. There's never been a better time to put an idea into the world than right now. The, the cost for putting an idea into the world, the number of the distribution systems that are out there from app platforms and YouTubes and beyond, um, have never been easier to use, more at your disposal. There's audiences that are waiting to, uh, to see your ideas, and the world needs it. Like, the, the world needs more entrepreneurs putting more ideas in the world. Um, I think that we've seen that we, we can't always rely on institutions and governments to solve the world's problems. I think, I believe that the future will be solved by a concert between governments and institutions and also entrepreneurs stepping forward and say, hey, I have a better way to do something. I see a problem that's in the world, and I've got a better way to fix it. So my advice is go do it now. Joe Gebbia, a jumper at heart, a failed jumper many times, and a very successful one and many others. Thank you for joining me on the When to Jump podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. That will just about do it on the When to Jump podcast. A huge thanks to all those who have been with us on the tour. We have hit San Francisco, Boston, New York, D.C., London, and now Sydney. It has been an incredible last few weeks. Uh, most of these events have sold out with hundreds of folks coming out with their stories. A huge shout out to all those who follow the podcast and have come out in person to join me. We're going to be in Nashville this week for an event where I'll talk about the When to Jump story and the book and be in conversation with John Ingram, who just brought a professional soccer team to Nashville and talk about the jump that it took to make that happen. In a couple weeks, March 5th, I will be in Dubai for our last continent, our fourth continent on the When to Jump book tour at the uh, Emirates Literature Festival, largest literature festival in the Arab world. Excited to keynote that. If you're anywhere near the United Arab Emirates, you got to come find me and say hello. And if you got a jump story to share, remember that's jump at mcmillan.com. And that's it for today. And tune in next week for another episode of the When to Jump podcast. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.